Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. All right, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. This is episode forty-nine of the Petronas Podcast with a um, an awesome treat today uh, with none other than the CEO of Innovex, which I'm sure many many folks are familiar with for a number of different reasons, which we will get into. Um, but this is Adam Anderson, the CEO of Innovex. Um, episode forty-nine today is Wednesday. June 1st, 2022. Um, as you know, um, Adam, I normally do a long intro with oil prices and everything. But before I get into that, I would just like to say hello and welcome. And thank you for coming on the Petronas podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Trisha. Looking forward to it. I enjoy the show. So it's good to be on. Awesome. Awesome. Well, okay, cool. So today is Wednesday, June 1st, 2022. Um, it is not very sunny in Denver, Colorado, um, it, which kind of sucks because it's, it's June now and we've had a bit of a late spring. Uh, but with that being said, WTI is hanging around this 115. It's 115.27. It's sort of hanging around 115. Brent, you know, the futures, the, the month rolled over. So it was 120, but we've seen this drop from that rollover. So it's about 116.35 right now. Henry Hub is hanging at 870. Um, so we're still hanging out roughly this under $9 mark. Dutch TTF right now in dollars per MMBTU, the European um, gas benchmark in, in dollars per MMBTU is about 27 bucks. And um, just for context, because I've added this metric, is a 30-year mortgage um, is 5.47. It's it you know spiked to over 5.6%, dropped back down. But that 10-year yield is what it f- tracks pretty closely. And you'll notice 10-year yields are up. We had a slug of of data that's come in. I haven't got to go into it, but the Fed Beige Book just came out. I think it has some pretty mixed information for the market. Um, they were talking about how consumers in most districts in the Fed Beige Book um, were starting to push back on higher prices, um, which is good and bad. But they were also talking about areas that were a little hot um, and still so obviously these high inflation reads. Um, but this is the Petronas podcast, and there is so much going on in the oil market. So we haven't got, I was just talking with Adam about this before we came online. We haven't got a whole lot of clarity on the OPEC meeting just yet, um, exactly what was happening. So if you were following OPEC last night um, and this morning and yesterday, there was a lot of talk about um, OPEC and Russia and whether or not OPEC was going to sort of let Russia sort of sit aside or sit out this one. We've had, it's been pretty clear that Saudi Arabia and OPEC have been pretty good friends with Russia and this whole, you know, the, the war in Ukraine. They've uh, made it very They've been worked pretty particularly to not to mention it as war. I think they accidentally said war once in in one of their uh, bulletins or briefings from their monthly side. But since then, it's it's, re, it's called a conflict, um, so they don't even call it a war. And Russia has actually, if you look at the data, I saw it just from the Middle East Economic Survey. They are actually at record exports for um, seaborne crude shipments, so for for outward crude shipments. So. Um, and and then Europe has said yesterday that they are working to reduce, obviously significantly reduce their crude oil volumes, um, basically getting rid of all seaborne imports to the extent that they possibly can. Um, but what's in- really interesting is that India is taking over a million barrels per day right now. China's taking over a million barrels per day of Russian crude. And uh, Italy's taking a lot of, actually, it- Italy's shipments have went up to nearly 500,000 barrels per day. So lots of countries are sort of deciding, hey, this stuff is really cheap um, and we're taking it because it's severely discounted. Uh, so I find that fascinating. Fascinating, and I'm sure we can circle back to that. But I just thought I'd I'd open it with all that, uh, you know, give you a little food for thought. Quite the backdrop. Yes, n- n- interesting times. Backdrop. Yeah, interesting times indeed. So with that, um, you know, Innovex, I 
I think a lot of people know you for um, for obviously the North Face jackets, um, which is something you may or may not, you know, the, the, the first thing. But obviously you are an oil and gas service provider and you, you provide a significant need to the business. And I was going over the presentation you sent me. And yeah, I didn't know all this. Uh, obviously, you're a private company, so I didn't know all these details about your business. So it's, it's quite cool. Um, and you are, you know, you are you're based in Houston, correct? Yeah, I li- live in Houston and our, our headquarters are here in Houston. Um, we do a variety of things. So Innovex designs, manufactures, and sells a pretty broad array of products from the wellhead down to the toe of the well. Um, Houston is home where um, we probably have 300-ish folks here in the greater Houston area between corporate design, engineering, manufacturing. And then we, we can kind of tend to design, build, manufacture most of the stuff here in Houston. We also have a manufacturing facility outside of uh, Dallas and Mineral Wells. Uh, we tend to design manufacture here at the the hubs, and then we've got probably about 30 service centers across the U.S. and all the ma- major shale plays, and then we're also in about a dozen different countries internationally, from Canada to Mexico to the Middle East, um, and all the kind of obvious um, international places. Awesome, and that's great because I really think um, I think I've noted this on previous podcasts, but I always talk about it in presentations of with clients. I think the service sector is is highly misunderstood, not just in the U.S. but a- abroad, in terms of really how pivotal the role is is to the business. And you know, I would love to talk about sort of. I know you probably don't want to give proprietary information on pricing, and I'm not looking for that, but I'd love to talk about you know the core of your business. You know, some of the pricing, what you're seeing on, because you know, obviously, your business you're working directly with ENPs, and I do think it's important to think about. It, well, I work with a lot of service companies and the portfolio and the interest in going abroad, not just, I mean, interest in getting purchased by whether it's private equity or, or moving stuff or by another company, but also the the stuff that's going on abroad really, to me, flies in the face a little bit of the the investment thesis that things, you know, we just haven't picked up in the Middle East. And it seems like a lot of service companies based in the U.S. are picking up significantly in the Middle East as well as, as, as here in the, U, in the U.S. So, I mean, there's a number of things I want to talk about the core business, but I, I do want to circle back and touch on inflation and, uh, and employment and, you know, the components that you have for the stuff that you're building. If you're getting that, if you're struggling with that, you know, where, where are those sort of pinch points and how have you guys, you know, how, how have you maneuvered around that? Because you have some you know, your business, you have dissolvable plugs. I mean, there's different things in your business, but, and obviously you, you benefited significantly from, you know, we're drilling fat, the wells being drilled in the U.S. are, are being drilled at a, at a rapid pace, even with all the inflation and all the bottlenecks, the speed is still significantly up there, even with not having the right people, it's still up there. Lateral lengths are still increasing for the most part overall. Um, and you're, it seems like your business from your portfolio is benefiting from that. So w- what is the core aspects of your, bi- I mean, I would love to talk about yeah. plugs and different nerdy tech stuff, but what's the so core of the business all that. and what, so, so- what sort of drives it? Yeah. So from a, from a very high level, just in terms of um, the different things that we do, we have, you could categorize it different ways, but I think of it as five big product buckets. Um, the largest of which is uh, what we call well construction or cementing tools. So this would be float equipment, centralizer, stage tools, inflates, all things that are used to place cement in when you um, run a liner or a casing string. So that's the single biggest piece of our business. Pretty close thereafter is what we call our well, well completion piece of the business. So this would be things like frack plugs, toe sleeves, liner hangers, packers, and kind of a whole array of, of ancillary products around that. So those two are far and away the biggest pieces of the business. They might represent 70% of the business on a, on a combined okay. basis. And then the three smaller product lines, the next biggest one is our, our fishing tool product line. So a lot of people will be familiar with the Logan uh, fishing tool brand. So this is a business where we design, manufacture, and sell fishing tools to the service companies. Um, so to the to the Weatherfords or Wildcats of the world to, for them to then go out and provide service on. 
Um, after that is our production segment of the business. And this, for us, production is really providing ESP accessories, um, either to the EMP or to the ESP company, depending on where in the world we're operating. Um, and then this uh, last piece for our business is kind of a specialty drilling um, services business. So in this case, the biggest part of that portfolio is providing a product called the Swivel Master, uh, which is really used in very um, particular high-end ERD wells. Think um, historically, Sockland Islands was a big market for that. A lot of the wells in Norway, say a troll field, for example. So wells where you tend to have very long step outs, uh, relatively short um, TBDs, and you really need the ability to rotate drill pipe without rotating the low completion. We have some specialty tools that are um, really one of a kind in our portfolio that do that. So that those are those are kind of the five biggest buckets of our products. And, and to your earlier point, some of those things, the vast majority of those things are consumable products that are sold directly to the EMP or to the large um, the large operators out there. Um, tends to be in the U.S. It's almost exclusively to EMPs and then internationally it's a little bit yep. of a mixed bag depending on where you're operating. Um, and yes, um, we have a lot of uh, manufactured products. We probably have 150,000 uh, unique SKUs that we'll sell in any given year. So a lot of different discrete products. And all of those things take a fair bit of steel, cement, polymers, plastics, all sorts of variety of products. That, uh, so we, we're definitely... Uh, our supply chain leader, uh, Ben Griffith, and our team there do a wonderful job keeping up with the last year of kind of craziness through COVID and then then inflation to ensure that we're able to get what we need at a reasonable price and, and uh, take care of the customer. And so have the, you, uh, I mean, I'm sure for some of these products, you've you've done a little stockpiling because you want to, if you're, if you're presuming there's going to be more inflation, which I'm, there, there is going to be more inflation or at least, at least significant supply chain bottlenecks, if there's anything to do with Europe and, and Asia. So I presume your, your certain areas that you, you know, you're, you're seeing in advance, you stockpile on that and then you're able to, you know, at least keep prices somewhat steady for your customers. Yes, we absolutely try to. Of course, it's a it's a mixed bag because the biggest um, we're not a very capital intensive business is which one of the virtues of our space. But we do have a lot of inventory on hand, so uh, that's one of the key things we try to balance is having enough inventory on hand um, to take care of our customers. And one of the natures of the U.S. oil field is that you have to be very responsive to our customers who might change um, well programs from pad to pad. And you need to be able to respond very quickly to that. So you need to have enough inventory in the ground to take care of that. And, and to your point, in these times where um, the supply chains can get disrupted in a way we've not really seen historically, you have to be able to navigate through that. We're fortunate in that the vast majority of what we do, uh, most of the machining, most of the assembly is all done in the U.S. Um, a lot of the steel products are U.S. based, although you, may, you have stuff coming from all over the world or globally. So we're not as exposed outside of a couple of very unique products to say a China situation where things tend to open and close uh, in, a, in a less predictable manner right now. Uh, so we're, we're able to be pretty robust against those kind of changes, but it's, it's definitely a, a challenge, particularly given the number of you know, inputs we need to, to build all the different products coming out. The Right. And it's not so much, I mean, it's not that when, when I think a lot of folks and myself comment on the, the China thing, Europe, it's not so much that a product is necessarily coming from Asia or coming from China. It's that is it being, is there some aspect of a product that's being disrupted by a supply yeah. chain? I think, you know, most people don't break, break out, you know, defining what exactly the supply chain is, but if it's that, if anything is being, if it's not made 100%. onshore U.S. Um, or a piece of it's not made onshore U.S., then it has to be compiled. You could have 
95% yep. of it made here and you're waiting for a little bit, a little bit component, a chemical or something, a specialty item. And then that's, that's held up. And I think that's in, in this business and many, many others, um, whether it's, I mean, tiny little aspects of the business that people don't, wouldn't sure. normally think is a big deal. You know, disruptions like a war in Europe um, have, have impacted stuff that because, you know, Ukraine and Russia didn't just export, um, you know, energy or food. They actually exported a lot of metals and other things. And, and those have uh, unique, have, have provided some unique disruptions, I, I think. Think, um, no, that's all aspects of that's a hundred percent the case. Yeah, and we see it like in some. Your point is a hundred percent right on. Is that for a lot of what we do, you would, it's made in the U.S., but there is some small component of it. If you look at like some of the alloying elements, uh, magnesium is a big one that we use a lot of. Almost all magnesium is made in China. Almost anything rare earth is made in China today. And um, in some cases, magnesium is one used a lot in dissolving plugs, but it's also used in alloying and. Um, it's it's a very small piece of a um, of a piece of steel, but uh, you need each and every one of those components to, to get the end product. So you're exactly right. You can have 96 percent of something, but if you don't have the last four, you know, you can be pretty exposed. So has that impacted any of the actual uh, picking of products? And I kind of want to get into this. I want to loop back on the the public, you know, the actual EMPs that you're you're working with and stuff um, and and. I still want to hammer home some of the, this inflation bit and talking about how service providers needing to make money. But I want to talk about sort of the aspects of that, that you noted out in the presentation you sent me on, you know, longer laterals, obviously, you know, the, the intensity of the, of the wells and everything, but the way your business fosters and, you know, there's longer laterals. A lot of people often talk about the very end of that lateral and completing the very end of that lateral. And, you know, years ago, there was a lot of fear, not, not even that long ago. Certain operators had a significant fear of drilling too long a lateral because they didn't think they could complete the last end of that lateral um, as well. And now that seems to be a lot of that fear has gone away. Obviously tech, you know, people have gotten more comfortable, not just drilling them longer, but actually completing them longer. And those dissolvable plugs and the stuff that goes on in the toe of the well, I'd love to know you know how that's how that's working and if if there's pieces of this business that you know if folks can't get something you know has the business sort of turned to you know we find a different solution it's very innovative but i'm very curious on the on the you know the toe of the well that you talked about in the presentation how what's that looking like and how's that driving the business and how's that sort of moving the needle um in the u.s because i i think it's it's hugely significant i know lots of folks in the u.s know it I, I don't know how many people you know that aren't deeply involved within u.s shale really appreciate you know, drilling a three mile long lateral and being able to complete the last half mile of that lateral accurately, that's a big deal. So you're not yeah, seeing diminishing marginal returns for that production. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an area we spend, spend a lot of time focused on uh, in a couple of different ways, one of which is through the, the area of tow initiation. This is a big deal, as you know, in all these wells where folks don't want to have to go in with TCP or something and stimulate the wells. So we do a lot in the area of toe sleeves or wet shoes or things like this to enable a good cement job, allow our customers to get a casing, a good pressure test on the casing, and then ultimately open up the well um, interventionlessly to begin the frack process. So that's a big part of what we do. Uh, and we do that to kind of t has tended to evolve over the years to kind of very basin specific solutions where you'll see in the Northeast, we do it one way, the Hainesville a different way. And then, then the Permian Basin is probably the most diverse, uh, just given the geology out there, people do it different ways in different places. So that's one area that uh, we're very um, involved in. The other area to your point is frack plugs. Uh, we've been, we're, we're one of, if not the leaders in terms of the units of dissolving plugs sold out there. Uh, and we've been pretty um, pretty big proponents of that. I, I think today that probably 20, 25% of the frack plugs out there are dissolvable. When that when those products first came to market, I think very early on there was the promise that, hey, we could run all these dissolving frack plugs and flow the well back and not intervene on the wells at all. And I think pretty early on that was dispelled 
as just a, a bad way to do it because you're, you just produce so many solids into these wells, you need to get in there and clean out to clean all the debris out and to sure all that sand comes back to surface. So from, from the get-go in the dissolving plug market, at least when we entered it, I would say maybe four uh, years ago, our focus was really on not telling customers we would eliminate intervention, but that we would make that intervention far simpler and more efficient. Uh, through eliminating the um, the actual drill out time, but also eliminating the amount of debris downhole, which which inhibits the progression of the coil or the stick pipe to get to bottom. So um, yes, to your point, yes, we see much of that either in full laterals. Uh, a big part of our market is doing dissolvables from from heel to toe of the well, but also we have customers who are focused in your example of a fifteen thousand foot lateral where they may the last 5,000 feet where they're particularly concerned about friction, want to get rid of the plug and be able to, um, to get to bottom just that much easier. And um, if, you know, God forbid something happens and they're not actually able to get to the last thousand foot or something, they can come out a hole and have some confidence that those, those dissolving plugs are going to dissolve and be able to produce them back to surface. But I think in general, my view on it is, hey, I wouldn't want to drill a well so deep. I, you wouldn't want to depend on the dissolvable to go away, except for in very unique circumstances. Right. Um, without going in there to make some kind of cleanup to, to ensure that all the debris is out of there. Right. So it's a, it works on, you know, it works on that. And and then has that, you know, the ability that, yes, you're still going out and you're still cleaning it out, um, but it's you're still doing that and you're still making sure things are looking. But has that helped to reduce the cost on that? I mean, has it? Has 100%. The, okay. Yeah, that's, that's our value proposition there is that uh, we're able to take that clean out from, let's say, a two-day clean out down to a uh, 24-hour clean out or something okay. like that. that so your, yep. total, your total time on location, total cost, the risk that goes with it, all of that is reduced. That's, that's primarily our value proposition. And so when we price these dissolving plugs, it's typically priced at a premium to a composite, but at a small enough premium where it's pretty easy for our customers to get their head around, okay, I'm going to pay a little bit extra for the dissolvable, but on the back end, I'm going to save that and some on all the clean out. Right. And how much of that is being, I mean, are you seeing that uptake? I think in the Middle East, I always think about, you know, I, I am, I'm pretty bullish on, on unconventionals in the Middle East. I, I don't think people follow it as closely as they should. Um, it's not as, um, it's not as sexy and glamorous as it sort of is here. And a lot of people just don't realize that mo almost every single Middle Eastern country in the Gulf has a um, has has at least a pilot project on unconventionals, if not significantly more. They've mm -hmm. definitely struggled. There's cost components there, but I'm curious if if some of the stuff that you're doing, and obviously you sell abroad, if that's having an uptake, and if that's if that's you're, you're seeing, I wouldn't say a step change, but but uh, more of a a growth and adaptation that they're sort of these tools and stuff are benefiting, and they're they're listening to you and they're using the stuff in the way that they should be using it. Um, so, so, yeah, we see some of that for sure. So there's two big unconventional markets that we participate in, in internationally, and that's Argentina and Saudi. Um, so Argentina is a little companies. bit yep. closer to home. Um, and, and certainly we're seeing some uptick in activity. And in fact, as we speak, we have a fair bit of work going on with the dissolving plug um, business in Argentina. Um, I think all those benefits we described are, are probably even more helpful in a place uh, where that you don't have the same level of service intensity that you have in the U.S. So I think um, that's part of the reason why the Argentinian frac market has gone so much to dissolving plugs versus composite plugs. Um, the Saudi market, where we don't participate in quite as much, that those contracts tend to be turnkey contracts with the frac provider. So I think in Saudi, for example, Jafar is one of their big uh, unconventional developments. And I think right now, um, Schlumberger is doing the bulk of that work and provide. So we're not as involved and in, in, in ingrained with that one. I know they've gone back and forth between composites and dissolvables. We do do some tow initiation work in Saudi Arabia, um, but we're just not as active or as big of a part of our business as it is in the U.S. So um, I think that 
it'll be interesting to see how that those projects play out over the years. I do think um, in some ways the U.S. has a very unique advantage in unconventionals because it's um, because of that level of service intensity, let's say, in the amount of capital service companies Absolutely. employed in the U.S. No, it's just not the right. same at all in Argentina or Saudi Arabia. So I think they may struggle. It'll take them longer to, I think, uh, crack will. the code and figure it out than, than we have here. Yeah. That nimble, the nimble, you know, yeah. flexible service sector, I think, is is such a critical component to to how sort of the U.S. took off. But that being said, yeah. I would imagine that you are seeing, and I, I mean, I'm asking I, if you're seeing a at least an interest level uptick um, from folks, not just inside, but abroad in terms of uh, folks getting back to business and gearing up. I mean, I always say it's, it's very yeah. hard at these oil prices not to see that. I mean, I can't imagine that at the very least the phone is ringing from, from different parts of the world um, and that there's an interest level for that to pick up. Yeah, I think broadly we're seeing that um, across the board. I think the first place, somewhat surprisingly, or maybe I say surprisingly, the first place we're seeing the ramp um, occur is in Latin America, actually, kind of from, from Mexico down to Argentina. And in, in each of those basins we're seeing, or each of those countries, we're seeing some meaningful increase in activity. Some of those were particularly hard hit during COVID. So if you look at a Colombia, Ecuador, Argentina, they got down to almost zero activity. And they've really ramped back up pretty quickly here over the last six to 12 months. So we really see that right now. Um, Middle East is obviously a place where there's a lot of talk, uh, and I think uh, Ramco has put out pretty big growth plans in order to get from 12 million barrels a day to 13 million barrels a day. They're going to have to add a lot of rigs um, to do that. That hasn't really started to hit yet. So even if you look at like Schlumberger's results, if you look at their Middle East results, they're not up a lot over the last uh, five or six quarters. But I think everyone's kind of expecting that to hit later in the year, as you see, just hear what, what customers are saying and how, how things tend to be flowing. I think it's coming over the next year or two. But as you know, that all that is just a little bit later cycle than the U.S., Right. And that, you know, I mean, I sort of want to segue and if there's other, you know, we can we can certainly dive back and talk about more on on the U.S. and your business. And I, I will probably we'll probably close talking about the North Face thing. Um, and I'm assuming that if I send you a mug for being on the podcast, I'm going to get an Innovex jacket. So I'm, I'm guessing this is this is how we're going to make the, this trade work so I can support it in Denver. Um, but I would love to talk about because when we were talking about it on the phone previously, obviously, you're a private company, so you, you can talk more candidly um, and we can you know, we we can. Um, you know, shoot the talk about uh, ESG and investment and things like this. But um, what you're saying about Latin America and the Middle East, I mean, I think these are these are important in the context of right now, 115, $120, well, $120 oil yesterday for Brent dropping to, to 116 with the rollover in the contract. Um, but, you know, yesterday I had talked to a few different folks and and I, I just told a, a client, you know, the, the the estimates that you heard on TV, if you're watching Bloomberg or CNBC yesterday, were as low as 70 ending the ending the year um, at $70 oil and as high as 150. So it, pretty broad estimates for crude oil. And I would say, I think we are definitely at, um, we're probably at a geopolitical risk premium. I think we're probably at an unprecedented, not unprecedented, but uh, historically speaking, we're, we're up there in terms of probably 20 to 30 bucks, if not more, that is that is sort of this baked on price. Because when I looked at these crude oil export figures from Russia, they are at all time highs. So yes, product import, the the product side of the business and refining globally is tricky. Um, and, and that, that is sticky and it's moving around and we struggle there. We also have, you know, the Rockies aren't, aren't put, you know, pad for here in the Rockies and, in aren't, you know, pushing the envelope in terms of refinery utilization. The West coast is the same way for refinery utilization. And anytime you have obviously refining maintenance or anything globally, super heavy hit by COVID, people under-investing on the refining side. So that's certainly impacting this. But I think in terms of actual crude supplies, you know, from Russia and the exports, 
fact that so much is being exported, it's not something that I'm, you know, overly concerned about. In fact, um, it's interesting because I think this risk premium is put on, you know, what could happen. And, you know, if Russia was to to be kicked out of, not kicked out, but to be sort of pushed out of, of OPEC a little bit. And I think the risk is actually more production than less because you're, you're now starting to, I mean, you're seeing Iran and Iraq I mean, you're seeing countries have to actually lower their price of their barrels to get it into Asian markets because they're competing with a severely discounted, um, you know, Russian oral barrel. Um, and that's that's relatively significant. And that actually harkens back a little bit more to, you know, crashing, you know, raising production and crashing prices. Not the same thing. Obviously, we're not raising production. But if you're lowering your prices and you're competing to get in, then you think of like, OK, well, six months from now, if if, if demand is not as hardy as it is right now, even if it's 500,000 barrels a day or a million barrels a day and it's off, then that picture starts looking a little bit different. And I think that sort of risk premium placed on crude um, also looks a little bit different. And the risk is then a li- more to the downside than it is to the upside. So I just feel like a fun- from a fundamental perspective of supply and demand, I feel like I feel like oil prices, certainly the estimates for 150, not that it can't get there, not that traders can't take there, but I think it's a little over its skis. And I would love your perspective as a you know service provider in these U.S. and just you personally. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, fascinating topic. I, I think in the my twenty years in the industry, I found that my my crystal ball on oil prices is terrible. Shocking. Um, so <laughs> so I think what we try to be good at is uh, the it, it's very unpredictable. So I think as the way I look at leading a service business is we have to be able to respond effectively whether oil goes to 150 or whether it goes back to 50 or something like that. Um, so I think Absolutely. that's what's most important for service companies to be able to survive through these ups and downs. So that's how we think about the world. So I don't really plan our business based on how good a prognosticator on are we on oil and gas prices. But in general, I would say I'm probably a little bit more optimistic than you are on it. I, I think um, the U.S. is going to struggle to add production um, more so than we have in the last couple, like, let's say, 15, 16 or um, 17, 18. I don't think we'll be adding a million and a half or two million barrels a, a day the way we did um, last go around. Uh, so I think that's going to help the supply side a little bit. I think China is demand is still dramatically suppressed due to their zero COVID policy. I don't think that can persist forever. Uh, and then I think OPEC, although they're going to grow, I think they don't have the same spare capacity that they did um, 10 or 20 years ago, as in my view, partially evidenced by the fact that they're going to have to, they're talking about adding a lot of capital and a lot of rigs to make relatively modest growths in growth in their actual productive capacity. So, so I agree with you. There's some kind of um, premium built in today that probably um, does um, ease over time, but I still think we're going to be in a point of, you know, some, some prices pretty, pretty robust prices relative to where we've been over the last six or seven years will persist for the next few years. Um, you know, that's fair. I mean, I, I, I think I disagree with it um, on a few levels because I think it's, it's a, there's a thesis. It, well, and it's, it's a similar thesis around the business. So it's not that, you know, that's fair to disagree with because most people disagree with me on it. And that's because I, I think in my, my, you know, 10 plus years in the business now, I've never seen that shortfall of invest. Now, I really do think that the ESG investor pressure is fully contributing to a shortfall of investment from the public space. And I would like to talk about the public and private EMP in the, in the U.S. But when you compare publics and privates in the U.S., privates are going 
gangbusters, hundred plus dollar oil. I am not concerned about the private poking holes in the ground and, and output. So unless we're we're heartily concerned about the productivity, the losses in productivity, which I'm actually not seeing on a decline curve basis. So it, it's a little harder for me. I don't think we'll necessarily be growing two million barrels a day in the US, but we're growing output. And the problem is we've when people look at the data, they haven't seen it in the last several months, right? Two months EIA lags two months when you get full concrete complete data, it's about two months delayed. Um, and so when you have to see that it's got to start it's got to start growing because our, the rick count just keeps edging upward and we're poking more holes in the ground however well, you, that being I, said, I, I guess I have, a, I have a question for you on that front because i don't absolutely. follow the well productivity as closely as maybe i would i would like to but my my gut feeling is like we still have a lot of tier one acreage in the permian people are still getting more efficient so probably productivity is still going to grow in the permian but that in the the Bakken or the Eagleford that we might be more through that really true premium stuff. So places like that, you might see a bit of an offset and might see well productivity, new well yeah. productivity decline a bit. Is that, you think that's fair it's, or is that? Um, well, one, the question's great. And I wish more, more podcast guests would ask questions. Um, uh, Cause I think, so there's a couple of reasons. If you pull all, if you pull all the wells and you just pull any various or probably IHS or anything, you pull all the wells in the lower 48 of just horizontals and you, you throw it together, the major shale plays, and you look at the normalized decline curve. It's actually, you know, you know, it's edged up each year. Now there COVID obviously during 2020, you had far less wells being drilled. So there's a component of that. Um, a lot of people will tell me, Hey, you know, now we have a lot of upspacing. So of course, wells are going to perform a little better. However, Something really important to understand is that between the Bakken, the Eagleford, the Powder, the DJ, the Anadarko, and the Permian, all of them collectively have edged up a little more. And um, yeah, Midland is sort of flattish on a decline curve, but you know you're you're not seeing a diminish. You're you're drilling wells with significantly longer laterals. You're not seeing a, a significant diminishing marginal return, and you've lowered those costs. So there's something to be said about that. And then we we're actually seeing in the Delaware you know, the well productivity actually still increase. Um, and part of that, I mean, we're seeing massive gas output increases in a decline curve from the Eagleford. We're also seeing that in the Delaware. And the thing with these oil prices that people have to realize is that I've never really appreciated or I've never really liked the tier one, tier four acreage because I think it's a bunch of BS. When people mention it, it's like, are you showing me a map? Did you get, did we get every geologist in, in, in the US to agree that that's tier one acreage? I mean, it's it's kind of BS. So, and every operator says this acreage is good. I'm keeping it. This acreage is bad. I'm selling it. And then the operator who buys that acreage says, oh, but this is great acreage. So clearly, you know, that tiers is in the eye of the beholder. And at $100 oil, that Tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four, all the baby needs to be get thrown out with the bathwater because tier four acreage starts looking pretty damn sexy at at even $70 oil, let alone $100 oil. So that's when you're seeing, when you look at the map, so if you break out every play, which I do, and I look at each, each basin and you look at where the public and private operators are at, the privates are just you know, everywhere. And they're not where the publics are at. You know, they're on the fringes, they're doing stuff and they can, they can afford to take those risks because they are private. Um, and because oil prices are so high and gas prices are really high. So now not only is the gas drive, you know, in a, in a great Delaware, what, when you're, you're deeper and you're more thermally mature and it's great, you get this huge gas drive and, and it's driving that up. So yes, you have massive gas production, but you also have that oil production. And so I, I think people are, are maybe forgetting a little bit that high oil prices, um, I'd say they they mask, uh, you know, varying API gravities. They mask these high gas cuts. You know, they sort of all, all things are great. You know, we're producing this stuff, and and yes, we have to deal with the product streams and we have to move this stuff around. But at these oil prices, sort of everything's wanted. So I, I think that we have to be careful. On I would I, I wouldn't bet against 
the the U.S. shale sector. I sure as hell wouldn't bet against privates. And I just I think that we have to be careful about the upside potential. I think it's it's much more significant um, from a technical rock standpoint. I I we have a you know we have decades of running room left in the U.S. Um, and we're not even talking about just on, on shale gas um, and being a smaller molecule. It's yeah. easy to get out of the ground. That's a different so, story. Yeah, I think we have a significant amount of running room there. Um, and then when we think about the stuff abroad, you know, the fact that you're hearing that the uptick, and I see the same thing in Latin America, starting to see the uptick. And I think people probably aren't appreciating, yes, the market looks tight now, um, but the only people that are focused on ESG um, and in the environmental pressures for drilling completing wells is the democratic countries that should be producing it is Canada and the U S and, and Europe. So the folks that don't give a rat's behind about um, environmental social governance is Latin America is the middle East is Russia is all the, all, all these places that are producing a ton. And they're the folks that, you know, they're very good. OPEC is, is uh they, they tend to focus on supply. They're not very good at demand. And actually, they're not even always good at supply because OPEC can't control Latin America uh, to a large extent. And so when these prices are this high, when they're sustainably this high, yet one, it erodes the economy and you, you hit demand, but also you're ramping up, you're ramping up output. And so what you can get yourself into a situation is where production has ramped itself up and demand is starting to come back off. And it doesn't have to be a cratering in demand. It just means a softening in demand and that production ramping up. And that's a stabilization for the market. But it's just a reality that I don't think we can hold back, you know, anyone who's not um, a public company and ESG focused in, um, in, in the Western world is not going to be worried about any of the, the, they're not going to stop that investment. So the shortfall of investment, yes, it's it's struggled, but that's mainly because of COVID and a number of things and just getting folks off the map. And the fact that Europe is now doubling down on, I mean, they're doubling down on the, on the Middle East. I mean, they're basically going to the Middle East to secure their supplies. So the Middle East is going to have to continually increasing output. And we're looking at op- we're, OPEC's producing 30 million barrels, almost 30 million barrels per day. I'm sure the April number or the May numbers will, or, or sorry, June numbers will show a little higher for May, um, but the, about 30 million barrels a day. So this spare capacity thing that, yes, I mean, it's basically UAE and Saudi Arabia, but I just, I, I struggle with this, uh, this spare capacity because it's, it's like when you need it, do drill it. Um, and if not, and they've done, they're just breaking money in, you know, uh, they're raking, you know, money in or raking over it, coals with with yeah, no, that's true. Right and their 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 reservoirs are um, prolific. Even the stuff that they're develop, developing today, um, a little bit closer to Saudi than the other places. There, it's it's a or it's it's their their, their tier three acreage is uh, unlike exactly over here. Uh, that exactly. that hundred percent is 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 um, makes sense. Yeah, so I think from a technical capacity, we just have to be very, very careful in the business because what you articulated yeah. is is definitely a thesis in the industry, um, and it's a valid thesis. You know, it's, it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. It's it's valid. Um, it's just that there's a lot of there's a lot of nuances there, and I think that this. Um, I do think that you know where the global economy is at. I mean, a couple of week a few couple of weeks ago, we had Target and Walmart earnings calls, and I know we talked about this over the phone, but they were they were atrocious. You know, they were um, yeah. and and the market most people probably didn't i don't know if how many folks actually listened to them but the market dove on it on target walmart was the day before but target earnings had dropped you know 25% um your target 
the stock dropped 25%. And that was because Target had said how bad, you know, oil prices were impacting them for transportation costs, how much the consumer had shifted their spending, that they weren't buying bikes and TVs and stuff, and they were spending on food. And Walmart the day before had said, hey, we've got double digit um, food inflation. And they painted a rosy picture saying, hey, we'll do better in this crisis the most. But I mean, and you buy Walmart in a recession, they're the stock that does well. But I mean, they were saying, hey, people are buying food because that's all they can afford. And that's, that's a really serious yeah, thing that I shame. think is, is slow to get into sort of the oil market in terms of folks really appreciating that, um, you know, where demand is going to be. Demand is has held up because we've had this post-COVID wave and everything and people still wanting to drive and, and travel. But I, I think it's very, very serious from a demand perspective um, and in terms of where where the where the economy is at and and is demand supporting is this hundred fifteen dollar oil driven by demand and no, I I don't believe I, it, yeah it, I mean I, I go back to what I said earlier I don't think we, we know it's hard to hard to predict uh, one I would say hey what we're seeing right now in terms of increase in inflation energy food in particular is um, is tragic and it hits those who need energy those who can least afford it or hit the most with it um, so it it is a shame to see. I think that on the demand, I, I'm a little bit skeptical of the demand destruction story that people worry about with oil price. I mean, we shall see where it, it shakes out. Uh, but I think one, like the further I'd say, like we're, we're drawing a lot. Again, I don't, I'm not probably as close to these things as you are, but you look at obviously OECD oil inventories, they mm -hmm. continue to draw, uh, you know, counter seasonally. Um, so I think that's another marker that we're still undersupplied. So even if demand does, we do shed Absolutely. a little bit of demand. Absolutely. Um, I think we're probably expecting that and um, we probably can't continue to release oil from the SBR. So I think all of those things say that we're, we're structurally very undersupplied today, I think. So all the stuff you're saying is true, but I think over time um, that probably balances that to a place where things probably soften a little bit. But I don't think we're getting back to what we saw um, even pre-COVID um, with respect to energy prices. For better and or for worse, probably depending on where you sit on Absolutely that. valid. Absolutely valid. And there's a number of different things from an inflationary standpoint, gas prices and everything. And and actually, from a tipping point for what's going to impact the consumer, it is not just oil prices alone. It's it's everything else being really high and high oil prices. Um, but that being said, I'd love to... So the E&Ps and the business that you're seeing, I mean... I always, I, I'll, there's a podcast that'll be released this week that'll, this, this one will be released, released after. So I encourage listeners to go take a listen to it. But I, I talk about the, you know, this new sort of hundred dollar oil. And as you say very well, you, you clarified very well, it's very hard to predict oil prices. And that's true. Um, but you know, if you, if you were a public company, you'd be opening up and talking about the macro and you'd be talking about oil prices and you'd be talking about strip mm -hmm. and, and how great things are. Um, and I always say that strip is, you know, I, you can put the curve on a, on a chart, which I do and say, I've never seen oil prices look like this. So I've never seen oil prices just be a hundred dollars nice and nice and smooth and everything's yeah. great. Um, but that being said, I mean, your business is directly to E&Ps in the U.S. And we have this, we do have a hundred dollar oil market. I would say it's new. It's, it's not like people like as, you know, the footing on it, it, it they don't feel quite as, you know, like, hey, we're going to be here forever. So I'm just really curious from a business perspective and you're being private so you can be a little more candid, you know, is it is it like people are going gangbusters like, hey, we're there, let's go back, you know, we, we need everything. Or is that also things are tight so we're trying to, you're trying to get things and, and you know, how is that sort of looking from both the public privates and, and the inflationary aspect, the tightness in the market and how it is working out in the wash for you? Yeah, no, so I think in general for our business, we're probably in as good. I've been at Innovex or predecessor company, a predecessor company called Team Oil Tools for about 
uh, seven and a half years. And I think the, so I started like December, 2014. My first working day was right after the OPEC Thanksgiving meeting in 2014. Um, and since that time, this is probably the best macro backdrop. And I feel as good about the macro in the industry as I have all, as I have over the last seven and a half years. Uh, our customers are certainly um, getting more active. Yes, the privates have led the way on that. The publics are a little bit more constrained, but honestly, they probably couldn't add more. The industry couldn't add more to the U.S. because of all the different supply chain constraints we're seeing, which, again, hopefully is good for our business. As you know, we've had this tendency to overinvest and destroy the good time. So hopefully some of the um, um, supply chain constraints actually helps us um, stretch this uh, out a little bit longer rather than get too much activity today just to watch oil price turn over to back to $30 next year. Um, but yeah, we're all, we're, it's very tight. Um, we're, we're seeing a bigger call on products. And as you said earlier, we are much more levered to well count lateral length frack stages than we are to say rig count. Uh, mm-hmm. So we definitely benefit from wells getting longer, wells getting trickier and our customers needing to do more to, to properly drill and complete those. So uh, that's all been a tailwind for our business. The supply chain stuff has certainly been a challenge just to, to stay on top of all the different shortages and creates a lot of um, challenges for our supply chain folks who have navigated that pretty masterfully in in the total. But for sure, we've seen costs on cost on a lot of what we do rise. A big part of our business is, you know, steel is probably the single biggest input cost into our business. As you've seen, OCTG pricing is up like 300 percent or something just unbelievable and continues to go up. And that's had a big uh, knock on effect on the price of our product. So we have had to, um, you know, substantially increase pricing uh, over the last six months. And I don't think we're, we're through with that. And um, you never want to have to do that, of course, um, to your customers. But at the same time, hey, we need as a service industry, as you alluded to before, the industry has historically been um, whipsawed by the EMPs and it's been tough to get good returns in the service you industry. You need to make money. Partic- yeah, particularly on the, the capital side of it. If you're selling consumable products, you're not quite as exposed to that or your business model. Our business model tends to be a little bit more adaptable to that. But nevertheless, you have to generate money and you have to generate good returns. Um, and I think our, our customers understand that as long as you're working with them and are reasonable with them on how you how you kind of ease these these um, price increases into their program so that they can plan for it on future AFEs and things like Absolutely. that. But at this point, they're not nobody's surprised when you're like, hey, unfortunately, we've had these cost increases and we're going to need to um, to pass some of those along. And is I mean, so you're directly benefiting then, I mean, significantly from probably seeing a, a steady uptick as, you know, folks as the industry came out of COVID and the privates were quicker to respond and always are to mm-hmm. higher oil prices. So those privates and as oil prices really ratcheted up, they're more willing to do the trickier wells to, to deeper wells, uh, horizontal. I mean, there are definitely publics that are doing yeah. some, some deeper wells and stuff now, but yeah. I mean, that seems to benefit you, but also the privates are a little more chunky sometimes in nature. I mean, they don't always have a consistent uh, completion pro like, Hey, we, we've, we've locked in that frack fleet for the rest of the year, whatever it might be. It might be a little chunky. We do it here. We do it there. So it's a little bit different. I mean, I, I think clearly the thesis that um, the privates couldn't get the capital from has, is dead because we're, we're seeing <laughs> the privates off the races. So that's where I struggle with these sometimes these big mega theses that everybody has. So privates are getting the capital and they're doing this, but they are a little chunky. And sometimes even the smaller ones can be, hey, we're still giving you, you know, if that well's good, we're going to give you the rest of the money to do this. That's not exactly how a, a good business works. I mean, you sort of sure to let them develop. But uh, then in your instance, you're still, you still have to have the inventory. Um, so it's not as though those, those privates are being a little chunkier in nature. Um, has that sort of been relatively smooth because there's just so many going at it or is it, it, 
a little bit chunky and then the publics are pretty smooth because they're just going to buy large chunks at a time. Yeah. So most of the way that we sell product in the U.S. is we tend to do it on a follow uh, me basis. So as a, as a rig shows up or a frack fleet shows up to a location, we tend to deliver the equipment to that location that they need for that four wells or six wells or whatever the case might be. Um, so we, we, the, so it doesn't meaningfully change our demand signal, whether it's, uh, uh, let's say a big independent running five or like, let's say four or five big independents running 10 rigs or, you know, just an XTO running 10 rigs. We kind of tend to see a similar demand signal if that makes sense. We certainly saw pre-COVID to post-COVID a change to where pre-COVID definitely the top five customers were the usual suspects of, um, of mega independence and that's, or, um, uh, the the major um, integrated out in West Texas, as you would imagine, that's that's probably still the case today. But they probably represent a smaller proportion of that share than they did um, three years ago. But as far as how it's impacted our business in aggregate, it hasn't tremendously. You do see um, probably one of the big things we struggle with is just the the mass variability in what we do. We sell a lot of float equipment, for example, and you would think float equipment is not that uh, diverse, but it's it's very diverse because of, for a whole variety of reasons. And part of how we're successful in the market is we're able to accommodate all of our customers' changes in casing string designs that can change even from one operator, depending on where, which pad they're on or where they're at in a given basin, they'll change their casing string design, the thread profile that they're using, and all of that impacts the product that we're delivering. So a big part of our business is um, building an inventory that's almost complete. And then as customers come up, pull up to a specific location, being able to make those last minute, you know, changes to the equipment threads being a big one, for example, uh, where you'll make that just in time and deliver to location. So being able to stage that inventory where it's almost complete, and then we're able to make the last, uh, finish it off has been a really important part of our, um, ability to grow market share over the last few years. But whether it's public or, or private, I would say that in particular it does isn't hasn't driven that in and of itself hasn't driven probably a huge change in how we approach the market. I would say, or how we see that demand signal. Absolutely. Okay. No, that makes total sense. And I would say that you probably you're probably seeing. Uh, I mean, I know a lot of uh, a lot of well designs. I've heard of a lot of ad- adaptations with the inability to get steel or the the cost That's... of steel. And they'll be a certain size of casing and that changing stuff. So I mean, I feel like you know, if yeah. people are getting relatively flexible in how they're how they're doing these wheels, and that has to impact you because obviously the stuff that you're putting down there has to uh, yeah. We talked to, to, adapt to that. we had a customer in the office last week, and they were they're smaller folks. So yeah, actually, this flies in the face of what I just said because they're they're real small folks who who drill probably a dozen wells a year, and they typically buy pipe on the um, kind of third uh, third hand, let's say, or from. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. Excess, excess and obsolete pipe from others. And like the well they were on right now, I think they were going to run three different, on their production string, they were going to run like three different thread types because that's kind of what they could put together. And so that, that kind of stuff could impact us um, depending on how folks approach those those kind of challenges. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's all a valid point and it does impact sort of the stickiness in the market and to your, to your point about whether or not the U.S. could grow. I mean, th- these are all you know, extremely valid. So um, I think I can't let you go without the two things I know we talked about and you don't have to be, you won't be now that we're, obviously we weren't recording our phone conversation, but we were talking about Yishi and investor pressure and, um, and ripping on the net zero IEA's net zero thing a little bit on the 2050 and actually me a lot bit. I'm have uh, plenty of problems with that as, as most listeners know. Um, but I also, you know, you, you're, you became, I don't know if obviously you were known, but a lot of people know you from the, the, 
uh, jacket incident with um, with yeah. North Face and the inability. Yeah, we sell oil field tools too, but yeah, um, <laughs> I know what you mean. Yes, I, exactly. I tease, yes, that's fine. Um, exactly, but you sell oil field tools, and and that's why I didn't want to start and preface this because I'm sure a lot of people bug you about it. But that being said, especially in Denver, because Chris Wright bought a billboard, yeah. um, you know, downtown and put thank you, you know, North Face and everything. So and obviously that is that is directly because of you. Um, so it certainly increases awareness. I mean, I have a very expensive North Face jacket that I bought when I didn't have the money to buy it in like 2014. It was like a hundred dollar jacket and I don't even want to wear it anymore without <laughs> I need to cover cover up the thing on it um but that being said so we you went to North Face what exactly we can send great... you yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, and I sew so I can I can sew that patch on there so you went to North Face you tried to buy some jackets they told you no and then you uh you you just released this stuff publicly yeah no I uh, no I think IT is good that it is it's it's crazy that's been the um probably best free marketing we've gotten over the last year and a half and uh to, to even today if I meet with folks that I haven't seen in a while or new uh new people that I meet that that topic will frequently come up um I think it was um yeah to, the, the, to, to tell the real quick story on it um to the extent people don't know yes we were denied jackets by North Face I would I wrote a letter um, that I, I sent to the CEO of the BF Corporation, the, the parent company of the North Face letter. I didn't expect to get any response from them. I really wrote the letter and posted it because I think it's really important for the culture we want as a company uh, or for any company for the employees to feel that what they do is a force for good in the world. And I've had um, a, a, not a lot, but I've had I, I had one specific conversation I can think about a month before I wrote that letter where um, somebody was one of. Uh, one of the people within the company said, well, you know, we, we're in the oil and gas business or so a day job. It really doesn't help anybody. So on the weekends, I try to do things that are good for the world. And I thought that view was um, something we need to dispel. And that's one of the reasons why that's the primary reason I wrote the letter is I was hoping that uh, some, if not most of the employees at Innovex uh, would, would read that letter and would respond to it and would. I don't think it's something most people within the industry even think about how valuable oil and gas is and how critical that is to human flourishing and our prosperity. I think it's taken for granted across the world, uh, or certainly certainly in the U.S. and Western Europe, it's taken for granted. I think to a point you made earlier, far less so in developing parts of the world where they really are desperate for more energy. And the vast majority of people who live outside of the U.S. and Western Europe basically live off very little, uh, no, or very little energy. And I think they would relish having the access to energy that we in the Western world have. So I think it's pretty disingenuous of folks like the North Face um, who benefit uh, tremendously from the products that we produce to to basically demean our industry. And I, it's really hard to change the narrative on that. But I think my view has come around to, hey, what I one of the things I'm trying to do, and I think, other, I think Chris does an awesome job. He's probably the best spokesman our industry has is to, at the very least, change what the industry thinks of itself. Because if the industry doesn't talk positively about what we do, then who will? Well, um, so I think it's, it's actually pretty frustrating when I see a lot of people within the industry uh, make, either make these implicit or explicit arguments that, yes, the world needs to and should move beyond oil and gas. And, and but to be clear, like the day that there's a better alternative out there that's lower cost, more reliable, um, we should pursue that. But I think we should unabashedly celebrate what we do. Like all things in life, there's trade-offs. But uh, humanity has prospered in a way that was inconceivable 150 years ago because of oil and gas. And it's not it's not incidental to that progress. It is fundamental to the building block of every single part of modern well, life. Well, and 
I think you you make an excellent point that we talked about over the phone too, is that I think um, it's industry leadership to me is extremely frustrating is that I don't know if people realize that, and I know listeners of the podcast range from sort of CEOs to folks within the industry, but it's like when these CEOs are making these big net zero commitments and they're, they're downsizing the folks that are in the, in the field and they're, they're increasing their, you know, environmental groups and they're really, you know, selling the ESG story to, um, to the street. You know, I think that they have to be very careful. And, and I, you know, Chevron has done with their massive flip between, you know, saying before the the shareholder day last May um, and before that that call um, and what happened, you know, in May with that shareholder flip, you know, Mike Worth was very open about saying we're going to produce this crude oil. We're better at it than anyone else. So we're going to produce a lower carbon barrel and the world needs this crude oil. We can do it safely and securely and better. And then that changed, that sort of narrative changed because they got this pressure. And that's what really struggles is that, well, the people that work for you, you know, you need uh, you're you're producing a commodity, a very valuable commodity that um, the world is consuming. And it's an ESG crisis in and of itself to have an energy and food crisis that we have right now. And so for every barrel that, you know, every dollar you are investing in lower carbon, um, lower energy, lower BTU output, you are contributing to this energy crisis. And that is a little bit frustrating. It's, it's very frustrating to me when you're, you know, putting, when billions of dollars of CapEx are going to extremely low energy output, um, that's not necessarily even getting tied into the the grid and doesn't, you know, you're doing wind and solar. That's not a, a direct, uh, that's not a direct offset for actually crude oil or natural gas. So that's a problem. And then it's the, it's the bigger problem of, of that you have trillions of dollars that have left the space from an ESG perspective from the fund side. Um, and I want to look back to the the response from, from North Face, but the Deutsche Bank thing that happened, which I was mentioning to you is that, I mean, Deutsche Bank is in this debacle right now where they had a, a whistleblower, uh, somebody that was fired, then whistleblowed and said, Hey, your ESG funds aren't that ESG friendly. And I mean, I had, I had Dan Pickering and I've had others on the podcast or not, sorry, not Dan Pickering, um, different funds on the podcast where I'm looking at their, you know, green fund and it's all oil and gas with a, bit, a little bit of renewable. So even the but green they're, funds, they're and, more, yeah, the, those oil you know, and gas so the, businesses they're are like, yeah, but it's more like, acceptable. Because right. They, so it's just yeah, like, well, okay, so is this a re- renewable or not? And and that's where I call BS on that completely. But it's the same. So Deutsche Bank is getting in trouble for saying, you know, we're ESG friendly, but all this stuff is, they're saying it's not. And it's where it's elevated the E so much. It's all about the environmental stuff. It's just all about carbon. And the S and the G and the real humanitarian stuff with an actual war going on in Ukraine, with an actual, you know, food and energy crisis, with people not being able to, you know, heat and cool their homes, with not being able to buy food. It's, this is an ESG problem. And so I think this callous, it, to me, it feels a little callous to where we're like, it's, hey, let's work on net zero for 2050. It just seems a complete disregard the human aspect. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think it uh, just shows a, an incredible amount of privilege to say for those of us who, who really don't, yes. it doesn't impact a lot of the people's lives directly who are, who are having these calls to not invest in oil and gas. Their lives are not particularly impacted by these, these issues for them to, um, push these topics that have a major impact on people who need energy the most, either in our country or around the world, who suffer from a lack of energy. It's just disingenuous uh, virtue signaling, in my opinion. Um, and to your point about ESG, I think as an industry, we all we have room for improvement in a variety of different ways. But I think if you ask, hey, should we do right by the environment, take care of, do a good job for society, and should we have reasonable governance? I think the answer is we agree on all of those things. Absolutely. I and I don't think anyone in the industry would say, no one in the industry would say, you know, imp- Increase methane emissions, you know, reduce it, do all these, all these things. But that's different from, you know, it's, it's, it's doing yeah, right I think, I think um, and doing right. it well. We, yeah. 
Yeah, and we have people, with respect to the environmental one, I think our industry, a lot of people who are in our industry are there because they enjoy the outdoors and experience them on actively uh, in many different ways. So I think we're probably as an industry, I'm hard pressed to see another one where people enjoy the outdoors as well, much as folks in the oil and gas exactly. industry. Exactly. And I think if you, I mean, if you've grown up in the business, like I have, and you spent time outside and you're, you're literally in the element. So you have to have some kind of grit to you, but also that's where I think it's different. We're talking about environmental and concert. We're talking about people who were, this is, that's where I, I take, hard time with ESG at all is that because the E, which is environmental, is actually just about CO2, is actually just about carbon. And it's so anything else is 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 moot. And that's where the the investor side really does matter from the public space is that as as the publicly traded companies accept and endorse and adopt this narrative that they're being, you know, that they're and they're cheerleading it too, really drives me crazy. It's because they need to push back on it because the agenda and goal is not for them to prosper and to do really well and their stock prices to go up and increase output. It's so that they dwindle and they're not there anymore. That's the whole point of pulling the trillions of dollars out of these businesses and so people can invest. So it, I think these businesses have to be careful about, you know, how they're how they're actually doing this, because at the end of the day, you know, they're thinking we have one hundred fifteen dollar oil right now and stocks, you know, stocks are up, but they're touting this ESG thing. And I think if oil prices were to go to 50, I'm not sure the ESG narrative, because it is investor pressure, would look the same. Um, yeah, I think it would. It, it's it's stock hard. Prices. Yeah, and in fairness, I, and I, I've been on that side where for for some time with Baker Hughes, I was I was responsible for um, communicating with with the investor set, and it, it's a challenge. I, I certainly appreciate that a lot of those folks are in between a rock and a hard space, and it's very yeah. easy um, for those of us who aren't in those specific um, seats to make those decisions. I'm blessed that I, I get to work not only in the the industry, the business that that I lead is a wonderful business with great people, but our investors are understand the business. They're great supporters of this. I think they understand where we're coming from in many different respects. Whereas if you're in the public market, you have a bunch of different investors with a, with a uh, divergent set of priorities. So it, it, it's a challenge for those folks, for sure. Uh, but, but what I would say is I agree with you. I think ESG, it, when spoken to holistically, the fact that, hey, we need to take care of the environment and create a, a good environment for people. I think the, the S piece is one where the industry should really celebrate the fact what we do to create, uh, to one, not only does the product we provide uh, fundamental to, to human prosperity, but we as an industry, particularly in the US and around the world, create a lot of great jobs for a lot of people that are very high paying, rewarding jobs uh, for people that didn't necessarily go to Harvard Business School that can go to West Texas with a high school degree and have a great job where they can really um, flourish as as individuals and as a family. I think it's, um, there, there are other industries for sure that can do that, but we provide great jobs for people. I think the governance part is another one where our industry has probably struggled the most with in the sense of overinvestment and sometimes lack of alignment mm -hmm. between the shareholders and management. How many things have led to some um, some probably questionable decisions over time, which has led to some of the capital destruction, which has led to some of the, um, I think the investors really beating the ESG drum in some ways as a way of using, they are, they are. CO2, using CO2 mitigation as a kind of kind of a classic bootlegger and Baptist example where the um, the, the folks that uh, have been burned by um, the capital destruction in the industry have taken up this mantle of CO2 reduction as a way to um, explain why they're not going to invest in the industry going forward. But I think um, I think the industry operating responsibly, I think the industry doing a better job of celebrating our story and how what we do is fundamentally uniquely critical for, for, um, for humans, as well as do a better job of generating returns over the longer term. I think those things will work together to, right, to right. improve that narrative uh, 
over time. And I and I think that's exactly that's exactly it, is that, you know, I, I think it's it's ridiculous and unfair not to separate, you know, the that's why I always say investor pressure and ESG is kind of one uh, because it is about shareholder returns and it's about carving your, your space in a long only portfolio and getting managers to listen to fund managers to listen to you and, and to to hold your stock. Um, and the industry, though, you know, you're producing a valuable commodity. And to your point of doing it, uh, the point of saying about doing it in North America, whether it's Canada, whether it's the U.S. or whether it's in the North Sea, is that these are kind of the only places that actually have, you know, stringent rule of law, high, you know, very high emission standards, the ability to say this is a humanely sourced barrel with very high degrees of safety that has, you know, checks and balances that, um, you know, is it, it, very, I mean, has functioned for a long time. So the humane side of the barrel, the lower emissions barrel, it's all really serious and we can do it here. So I think demonizing the industry, demonizing itself and trying to reduce these emissions and everything, it's just, it's going to, um, you know, investor pressure, I always say is transitory, unlike inflation. And, you know, you had to buy into the Permian any and all costs at $60,000 an acre, you know, not that long ago when oil prices were 50 bucks. And now you have to do all the crazy stuff on ESG that doesn't even have a perfect metric. And the problem is, is that, you know, people have to, especially investors even have to be careful with this, um, is that at $100 oil, everything looks different. And so you can tout all this stuff and you can talk about it and everything, but it may not, um, it may not hold up in terms of an investment thesis and, and how the stock's going to hold up if oil prices were to drop to 70 tomorrow. And I, I just think that's important is that this is a, you know, we have to be, you're also producing a commodity and this is how it works. And I think the industry and leaders in the industry also have to be more vocal about, we produce this, we produce it really well. We are ESG friendly. Um, and this is why, and here's what an ESG crisis really looks like. Um, and that's what Chris Wright and Liberty do really well is explaining, you know, they have a different take on ESG and this is what we're going to do. And I would say that that takes um, that takes real leadership in the business. And, you know, we need to pursue that. And obviously you, your your talk on North Face um, and I hate to I didn't mean to cut you off there, but North Face did respond to you, correct? Uh, they, they actually never responded to me directly. Um, I, I um, oh, eventually publicly, they did. Yeah. Publicly, they did they did post something. It's actually been a while, so I forget exactly what they they said. But it was something to the effect of, "Hey, they they um, they reserve the right not not to sell product to whoever they want, and they do think that the world would be better off with less oil and gas. So they were going to do everything they could to like start to recycle products um, that are used in their jackets. I think the the their approach though is very focused on their product and how they're you know they're going to celebrate the 0.15 percent of their products that are made with recycled." Uh, petroleum products instead of new products, but that's that's even only a small part of the story. I think what what they, as well as many um, folks who share their views, misunderstand is that the whole outdoor industry would not exist without oil and gas. One, we wouldn't have the prosperity to be able to go skiing or go hiking, but you could. There's no way that you could support a you know the ski slopes in the middle of the the winter in Aspen, Colorado, without oil and gas. There's not a there's not really a credible renewable solution. Uh, anytime on the horizon that's going to make that happen. Um, so you just look at every activity that they celebrate, the activity would be implausible for humans to, to embark upon without oil and gas. So yeah, it's fine that they're going to make a little bit more stuff out of recycled um, material, but that doesn't change the um, the fundamental point that, that their industry wouldn't exist without oil and gas. And they didn't sell you the jackets at the end of it. Conclusion. At the end of, at the end of it, they did not sell us the jackets. No. So we, we went to a second, um, uh, an alternative supplier for the jackets. 
Well, you know, I think it uh, it, it is great free publicity, and you should yes. always uh, you should always take that up. I, and clearly, you know, you've uh, we've we've spoken on the phone before, and you've been a an absolute treat and pleasure to have on the podcast. I love the service sector. I like that you disagree with me on the market, um, which is great um, because I, I I don't like I don't like group thinking in lots of things, and I like pushback. So I think that's awesome. Um, and you know, if you have any, I'll let you. You have any uh, last last thoughts or or things you want to want to mention? Um, no, I, th- I think we covered a pretty uh, broad array. I, I appreciate you having me on the, the podcast. Enjoy um, what, what you put out there and, and your uh, yeah, insightfulness into the market. So it's been it's been great. All right. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. And thanks for listening, guys. See you next week. Bye. All right. Bye.